0: Uh, So I got a couple things working against me tonight for this sermon. Uh, The first is that, and I I just need to kind of confess this to you, confess two things to you. Uh, One, this this sermon feels a bit like throwing a pebble at a giant rock wall, hoping that it will fall down um, to me. And I I just need to tell you that. And it wasn't helped by the fact that one of my good friends, when I told him about this sermon today, uh, Ashley, would you put up that slide from Footsteps? The Footsteps one? I don't know if you got it. So one of my friends told me today, when I told him about the sermon, he said, and only some of you are going to find this really funny, but you'll find it really funny, uh, he said, it sounds like a really sophisticated version of footsteps, and I was like, damn it, uh, uh, dang it, that's what I, uh, um, that's another problem in this community, uh, okay, that I need to confess, um, oh goodness, so many sermons, okay, all right, um, So I got this working against me that apparently one of the the men I respect in this city thinks that the sermon sounds like that. Okay, Uh, anyway, all all semester long we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke and talking about what Jesus makes space for um, in our lives. Um, The Gospel of Luke has a lot more to say than just what Jesus makes space for, but um, we are a ministry, a community. The house is a ministry that values hospitality. Um, We think this is one of the the ways in which we love um, and extend the love of Jesus um, is by making space to meet another. Um, which is sort of how I'm defining hospitality, making space to meet somebody. And we've been looking at like what does Jesus make space for, um, and we've covered a lot of ground. In a couple weeks, we'll finish up this series um, talking specifically about hospitality through um, um, through God's interaction with Mary, um, the mother of Jesus. And um, but but tonight um, we're going to circle back to the very first sermon uh, sort of passage in this series, Luke chapter 24. Um, on this, this road to Emmaus, and we're going to look at Jesus making space to reveal himself to us. This, I, I, I would assume, is really obvious if you're thinking, uh, you know, what do Christians believe. Because we, we Christians proclaim some crazy stuff. We proclaim that we actually know God, that God has revealed himself to us, and that we, we like, know him. Not just know things about him, but we know him, you know? That's some bold stuff. So you might expect that Christians would say that Jesus makes space to reveal himself to us, but we haven't talked about that explicitly in tonight. We're going to. Jesus makes space to reveal himself to us. Okay, so um, here's how I want to kind of begin to frame this. Uh, there's a man in this city um, named Roger, and he's a saint. Uh, he's an 80-year-old child of God. Uh, he's an older brother in the church with a spirit far more youthful than I've ever had. <laughs> um, And he looks at me sometimes, and some of you know this story, this has riddled my life, I can't shake this, but he looks at me sometimes and he says, Ah, that sounds like the work under the work, Jason. And he does that. He like lingers a little bit longer, and it's like he's brewing some magic spell. I don't know what's going on, but he looks at me, and he literally says it. I'll tell him, what's going on in your marriage these days? I'll tell him a little bit, or at the house, and I'll tell him a little bit, and he starts talking. He gets this kind of like almost like he's like a twinkle in his eye kind of thing. I don't know what that means, but something like that, uh, and then he looks at me, and he just starts, you know, you know doing this thing. Uh, he's freaking Yoda, um, and he, he, he said this to me so much that like truly he doesn't often now when we talk, if he does this, he doesn't use words often. Like across the room, I've led Sunday school classes with him in the back of the room and I'll see him in the back just going like this. You know what I mean? And I know what that means. I mean, the work under the work. That's, that's kind of what Roger's, you know, getting at. And you guys, you guys probably know what he's getting at. There's so much more going on than you see, Jason. Right? That's what he's saying to me. There's so much more going on. You're talking about this and all this is happening. That's what Roger keeps saying to me all the time. Under this work is an other work, the work under the work. And while you're a busy attending to the circumstances of your life, God is fixing stones in the foundation of a new city with your name on it, Jason. He's guarding and caring and leading and convicting and teaching and reconciling and redeeming. And one day, you'll look back and you'll see the work under the work. The decisions and thoughts which take up so much of your time will just be footnotes in a greater story. The ever-mounting challenges that you face today will one day just seem like light momentary afflictions. There's work under the work. There's so much more going on in our lives than we know or think. Right now, each one of us in this room is living in the midst of a season which will be, this isn't a maybe, it will be like what you're experiencing right now in your life, the narratives, the stories, the, the what, you, what you spend time meditating on and worrying about and hoping for, all this kind of stuff, that will be incorporated into a larger narrative later in your life. You'll look back on this year, and you won't remember most days, let alone most moments. You'll tell an entirely different story than the one that you're telling now which sets the semester or this year of college or something in a totally new light. It's a new, it's a, it'll be a new narrative. The way you'll talk about your college years when you're 40 is different than the way you talk about your college years when you're in college. And you know why? Because there's always something more going on. There's work under the work. There's always something more going on in our lives. In every single one of our lives in this room, there's a lot of stuff going on. And in the, in the gospel story that we're looking at tonight from Luke chapter 24, which was just read a little bit ago, this, this kind of thing is happening in the story that we're looking at today. That day, in that moment, there were two men in particular who were disappointed and resigned. That's what they were experiencing that day. If that day you said, what's going on in your life? What's the story of your life? What's happening lately? It would have been resignation and disappointment, or, or, the, or the scriptures tell us that they were very sad in a nod to last week's sermon. But 10 years later, or even a day later really, if you were to ask them about that day, it would be that, that, that experience of resignation and disappointment and sadness, though they could acknowledge that they were feeling those things, it would be couched in a story of joy and surprise and wonder and hope. But in that moment, they couldn't see it. What they needed, this is a word we're going to geek out about tonight, what they needed was a denouement. Would you put that word up on the screen? It's a French word. Do you know that word? Every single English or lit or filmmaker, like film major or whatever, ought to know uh, what this word means. That should be like just a matter of course for you in your studies. This word, denouement. It's a noun which refers to a moment when loose ends are resolved in a story. So typically it's at the end of a movie or a book or something like this when loose ends kind of all come together. When everything comes together, th- this word, denouement, actually comes from a French word which literally means to unknot something to take a knot apart, a tangled mess, to take it apart. That's where this word comes from. You can imagine a bunch of loose ends in a story, knotted together and unresolved. And if this happens, this happens, by the way, in every single great story. As you walk through it in in a TV show or a movie or a book or a play or a musical or anything like this, as a friend is telling you a story, there, there are loose ends and things that you wonder how they're going to resolve, and you wait and you hunt for the resolution And when that knot will come undone and everything becomes clear, and that moment is called the denouement. So think for a minute uh, about Severus Snape. Okay, Um, which if you haven't read Harry Potter by now, um, shut your ears and then go home tonight and get started. Um, uh, If some of your parents need to talk to me about whether it's okay for Christians to read Harry Potter, uh, I would love to have that conversation with them. Okay, um... (laughs) Uh, So, I'm going to talk about Severus Snape, and I'm going to give a lot away. So, if you haven't read it, sorry. Um, Okay. Um, Think of the loose ends with Severus Snape as you're going through the Harry Potter series. Think of the tangled knot of Severus Snape as you read Harry Potter. He seems truly evil at one moment, heroic the next. Cowardly and brave, free and trapped, he's a conflicted mess, and you can never quite put your finger on what drives this man or who he is. And, and I think one of the reasons we can't shake it is because we know there must be something going on down there. There must be more than what we see, there must be work under this work. So every time Snape is tucked into into a corner whispering to somebody, or every time he is with Albus Dumbledore, or every scene um, which he is in, truly, as you go through the novels, you begin to sort of hunt for clues to figure out what is going on underneath with this man. And when finally Snape kills Dumbledore, Mr. Potter finally has proof that Snape is not trustworthy. And as a reader, I remember feeling a lingering doubt. It can't be that simple. There's got to be something else. But Harry Potter feels totally justified. See, I knew it all along, right? And when Harry journeys through the memories of that paradoxical professor, we finally have our denouement. The moment when the knot is unraveled and loose threads are brought together. We learn of a man with an unrelenting, unrequited love— for a girl that loved a guy that bullied him. We learn that even Snape's death stroke of Dumbledore was loyal. Somehow, after thousands of pages of squirming and cringing in the presence of Snape, those of us with hearts cry when Harry names his son after Severus Snape. And we know why, because of that moment. We know why he names his son that way. And yes, he also names him after Albus. Okay, whatever. Anyway. uh, But we we know why he did it, because of that moment. That moment when the loose ends... came out from the knot and they got tied together, these things that, that plagued us and bothered us and we wondered about and were, were squirming through and disappointed in and whatever. All of this stuff came together in this moment called a denouement when we learn about the work under the work in that character of Severus Snape, that there was always something more going on. We just didn't know what it was until this chapter called The Prince's Tale in the Deathly Hollows. That's a denouement. And after that moment, after that moment, you see everything in a different light. If you go back and read Harry Potter over again, it's actually a different story. You see things you never saw before, and it wasn't that they didn't happen the first time. You just didn't have the clues to unlock all of that stuff. Once that moment happens, you recast the entire story that comes before it. When we finally know what it means when a certain boy says, I see dead people. Or when we find out that Bane is just a puppet. Or when we realize that the beast is a prince under a curse and the only thing which will break that curse is true love. In those moments, we look back over the story and cast it in a different light. Because there was always something more going on. But until the denouement, we just didn't know what that work under the work was. In our text today, in Luke, it's parked right in that kind of moment. A couple of men were leaving behind these great festivities of the last week in Jerusalem, and they were on their way to Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile walk. When a stranger came up beside them on that busy road and started walking with them, what are you talking about, he said. And at the question, they stopped. They were walking. They actually stopped just as the stranger asked them, the question and they looked stunned and were told they looked very sad and one of them his name was Cleopas he couldn't understand why the stranger was even asking really wasn't he around the past few days didn't he see and hear all that happened why would he even need to ask what they were talking about And Cleopas essentially told this stranger as much, and when the stranger pressed further, Cleopas told him what had happened concerning Jesus of Nazareth. That he did and spoke incredible things and how he was delivered up to be condemned and how he was crucified a few days ago and how just this morning some women from our community reported that Jesus' body was missing. They were disturbed and messed up by all of this. And this stranger, standing there on that well-worn road, called them foolish and slow in response to them saying that. And as they started walking again, he talked to them about all the things concerning Jesus from Genesis to Malachi, which, should, which frames your Old Testament. And when they arrived where they were going, it was getting late, and then they invited the stranger to stay with them for the night because it was getting late. In a couple weeks, we're going to talk about the theme of hospitality in the Greek world. Um, it's littered in here. And this stranger, uh, so so he he decided to come over, the text actually leads us to believe that this stranger uh, wasn't even planning on doing anything other than coming over, but in a polite move, sort of said, should I go? Okay, I'll come with you. And and so they invited him over to stay the night and have dinner, And, and the stranger, sitting down for dinner, took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and when it happened, when that moment happened, that's the denouement. We're told their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. And as quickly as they recognized him, he vanished. And they sat there stunned again, this time not sad, this time beginning to retell the day's journey in a new light. They just experienced that day's journey, and now when he said this, do you remember that feeling? And when he said this, do you remember that? And they're now recasting what had just happened under a new understanding. This whole time it was him. This whole time it was him. And within an hour, we're told, they take off while it's dark back to where they came from. They actually take the the miles hike back in the middle of the dark to Jerusalem. Literally right where they came from. And when they found the other disciples, they told them what had happened. And in the middle of that conversation, Jesus stood among them and he said, peace. Which is weird. Uh, And they were freaked out. They thought it was some spirit or ghost or something. So Jesus says to them, why are you doubting this? Here, touch my hands and see my sides. See? And still marveling, he says, hey, uh, you guys have anything to eat? I love this story. Do you have anything to eat? The way Jesus hides and shows himself are equally surprising. And I love this man for his peculiarity. But what strikes me the most as it pertains to our community tonight Is that there is so much more going on than anyone knew. While these men were walking home, while they gathered to share reports, while they mourned over the weekend because of their loss, there was so much more going on. There's still so much more going on. God is in our midst right now, and we may not know it. He might be teaching us in this very moment when we wonder if He's even real. He might show up unexpectedly, right when we've lost all hope, and he might leave just as suddenly as he shows up. We might be asking him to tell us about the meaning of our lives, and all he wants to talk about is food. The fact is that God surprises us both with his hiddenness and with his presence, just like he surprised them that day. I don't know where or how you want God to show up in your life. I don't know. But he didn't show up in the way that those people wanted him to on that day. He taught them in secret. He ate with them at their home. He disappeared when they recognized him. And when he showed up again, it startled them and he just wanted to eat again. But right there in the middle of the story is a moment when they do actually recognize him. The moment when the loose ends begin to get tied together. The moment when the work under the work is revealed. The denouement. Here it is, so you can see it. It's Luke 24, in the second half of verse 35. He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They recognized him when he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. They didn't recognize him on the road, they didn't recognize his voice. They didn't recognize him when um, he showed up in their midst later and said, hey, or he said, peace. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Their confusion, their sadness, their questions, their burning hearts, were told in Luke 24, their hopes, the centuries of traditions and celebrations, all of these loose ends were resolved in that moment when they came together and he broke bread with them. In one sense, breaking bread is a really common way of just talking about eating together. That would have been the most natural use of that phrase. That's what they would have understood is not a heightened, uh, what we might call a Eucharistic or communion celebration. They would have understood breaking the bread as we just get together every day and we eat together. We literally break fast over the night and we eat. Or later on in the evening, we get together and we break bread together. This super common thing that's at every single meal. In one sense, that's exactly what breaking bread means, and any Christian community worth its salt eats together all the time. But for Christians, breaking bread means a little more than that. Because in the middle of breaking bread with his friends, just a few nights before, Jesus took bread, common bread and table wine, and he made that common food and drink a mysterious picture of who he is for them and of who they are to each other. When he said, the bread is his body for us and the wine is his blood for us, and every time we break bread together, we should remember this. This is what we're called to remember. This is what we Christians recast and retell our stories in light of. What? God for us. God with us. God is for us. God is with us. God is for us. God is with us. God is for us. God is with us. This is the work under the work. The tribe, the exodus, the judges, the kings, the prophets, the laws, the tabernacle, the temple, all of it cast in a new light. Because of Jesus' body and blood revealed and remembered and hoped for in the breaking of bread. His friends were hoping for an overthrowing of Rome. For Jesus to take up crown and sword, for him to wipe evil off the face of the earth, and to give his people what he promised them. And in the midst of them looking for him to do that, he says, My body broken and my blood spilled. The cross before the crown. Humility before glory. Death before life. This is the denouement. It's the moment which his friends will look back to and see it as the very thing which makes sense of their experience. That's what breaking bread means to us. There's always something more going on. There's a work under the work in our lives, and the breaking of bread together is what pictures that work for us. Here's what it means practically— In the midst of, hypothetically, family drama, procrastination for the classroom, career discernment, romantic intrigue, stranger things, hikes, trips to the convenience store, whatever else, God is actually up to something. There is a work under all of that work in our lives. And we friends like them are prone to miss it. And you know what we need if we're going to recognize Him? It is not primarily a sign in the sky, waters parting, doors flinging open. We need to break bread together. We need to remember that He offers Himself to us. We need to experience that together. You and I can help to see in the other what we cannot see in ourselves. We can speak to each other and how we've seen that work under the work in each other's lives. We need to break bread together often. This is how God makes a space for us to know Him in the church. He is at work right now, and this is where I feel like it's a pebble against a giant wall. He is at work right now, reconciling you to Himself and to all of His creation that's actually happening. In this moment, over the very course of today, over the very course of this day, this past week, this past semester, in the coming Thanksgiving week, His body for you, His blood for you, the whole of creation for you, if only you would have it in Him. This is what He's at work doing. But you might just see like tests and sicknesses and transitions and things to accomplish. Think this is all really just about a job though? Or a romance that will end when somebody dies? Or making some money before you retire? Getting a little respect before the people that respect you die and then forget about you? Those are all loose ends without a denouement. The work under the work is that God is for us and God is with us in Jesus Christ. That's actually happening right now. But on our best days, our best days, we forget and disbelieve that. And so, we come again to a table to break bread together, to have our faith and our memories and our hopes nourished, to go Right, 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 right. The cross comes before the crown. God is for us and and, and us for the world and the glory that I so long for, it's still coming over the horizon, right. And then in that moment, the invitation is that our responsibilities and our relationships and our questions and our worries and our hopes and our fears will all be unknotted and put together again under that truth. That truth, which we resist so much, because who among us wants to actually share in Christ's sufferings in order that we'd share in his glory? Who among us actually takes him seriously when he says, Lay your life down for somebody else? Or through his apostles would say, Outdo somebody else in honor. Aren't we all just after our own honor all the time? We resist it so much. It's no surprise to me that what Jesus really introduces, it's not a a once-a-week or once-a-quarter ceremony or ritual. It's actually a daily thing. Potentially even multiple times a day. Every time you come together, do this in the remembrance of me, he would say. Is that how often I forget what the work under the work is? This is how Jesus... Unties the knots and pulls the loose ends together. This is how he makes space for us to recognize him. And I know some of us in this room have given up trying to recognize him. We're going through motions, even coming to a thing like this. Some of us have a, the faintest of hopes that we could ever even recognize him, and we're just hoping to get in by standing in the right line. Some of us are really disappointed because the way that God has revealed himself is not robust enough. Quite frankly, it's, it's not robust enough for the hopes that he's given us. Because you know what Jesus promises? He promises that one day you will live in, any, uh, in a body that won't perish, and you'll see him in the flesh, and you'll hear his voice. All those things are good desires and good hopes that he wants you to hold out hope for. But man, this stuff's real hard. We want to recognize him if we have any hope left in us but my suspicion is, is that we try to recognize him in all these ways which are hard to find him. In, 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 in self-promotion, in one-upping somebody else, in, in God giving me what I think I deserve because I'm jealous of somebody else, on and on and on and on and on. And in those places, friends, he's at least elusive. Often not wanting to be complicit in some of that stuff when he says, my kingdom and my way is putting others first. I'm the king of this kingdom, and I lay my life down for others. What do you think you're signing up for when you sign up for my kingdom? But we forget this, and we forget this, and we forget this. And so the way Jesus wants to make space for us to recognize him is by gathering us together daily to break bread. And to let what this means reshape and recast every other part of our story. That's what he wants. So the author of Hebrews would say, do not forsake the gathering together of believers like some are in the habit of doing. We should be gathering friends often because we forget, because we have lies inside and out that fight against the truth of this reality, because our culture is in no interest at all in the way of Christ. And I'm not against America. I'm very thankful for our country. But this is a, I I want my rights. When Jesus would say, your your rights are given to you only as gifts to give to others. That's a Christian ethic. I'm very concerned about my rights as a Christian, only because I want to know what I have to offer you all the time. That's That's a contrary ethic. And I need to come over and over and over again to the table of Jesus and to the people of God to remember the truth which reshapes the entire story. If you believe that God doesn't love you, if you believe you have out His grace, if you believe that you're not good enough in His kingdom, if you believe that there's some work that is intrinsically more valuable than other work, if you believe that you have got to earn your way back into His good favors, you need to come together to break bread with other Christians over and over and over again to remember that God is for you and with you this really is the denouement and it just feels to me like again throwing a pebble at a wall because i know all of the resistances in us to believing that this could possibly be true and it is my prayer especially over a season and god it's got a sordid history but a season we call thanksgiving and a season we'll be approaching that, that christians around the world celebrate called advent which we'll talk about in a couple weeks It's my hope and my prayer that we are looking for how God is trying to show himself to us. And friends, I know we want to see him in his glory. But he offers himself to us in his humility right now. And he says, follow me. Follow me. On the night he was betrayed, just a couple days before the story we were reading, Jesus was sitting at dinner and he took a common loaf of bread. And after he'd given thanks to, to God, the Father, he broke it and he handed it to them. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and giving thanks for that too, he said, This cup represents the new covenant for you poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we look forward. We remember Christ's death, and we look forward to his coming again. And for friends all over the world today, like today, my car broke down, like kind of, I had a tire, that sounds so dramatic. Uh, I, I, I had a, it was a very dramatic afternoon. Uh, my, my tire broke when I was late to a board meeting, and then I put on the spare, and it also broke. Uh, so we have a parking spot, like right out, parking lot right out here, and uh, I had to pay for parking like a block away. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's dramatic. But when my car broke down You know who I ran into? I ran into a friend of mine that's a pastor here in town who was his church was doing a Eucharistic service, a communion service at noon. And we talked to him about that. And all over the world today, Christians all over the world are celebrating the same meal, coming back to this moment which contains all moments, this moment which explains all of it to us, which helps us to understand how all the loose ends and stuff that we deal with on a daily basis come together. It's, It's been happening for thousands of years all over the world every single day. I dare say there isn't a day that's gone by since the end of the first century where Christians have not remembered this meal somewhere. And so we, like them, all over the world, we remember what Christ has done for us. We let it speak truth to the narratives of our lives and the loose ends and the frayed ends and the knotted stories and conflicting narratives and things that— we let it speak to us and unravel those knots and pull things back together in a new light— That God would give himself to us, not just give his resources to us, he would give himself to us in his body and blood. That's how much you're worth to him. And so we, like all Christians for the last 2,000 years that have been celebrating this, we, we don't just remember that, we look forward with great anticipation to when he'll come again. That's what we do. In just a minute.